Welcome to Do It Right, a podcast by students at William Carey University College of Osteopathic Medicine. My name is Saman Gavaria, and today I'm joined with my co-host Aisha Sheikh. Today we're going to be interviewing the Dean of our medical school, Dr. Subra. Hey folks, good to see you today. I'm excited about this podcast and, and for us to have get to know one another a little bit more and, and have deeper conversations. So we wanted to talk to you about a couple of different things today. First, we wanted to get to know Dr. Subarau and his journey to medicine and to education. Um, and then we also wanted to talk a little bit about the importance of public health and cultural humility. And then lastly, we wanted to discuss how we can incorporate the osteopathic philosophy into our practice as future physicians. So Dr. Subarau, the yeah. first question I have for you is, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into medicine and how you got to carry? Yes, it's a, you know, and I, I'm so grateful for that, you know, just asking about how did we, how do we end up where we end up? You know, I think that when you start out in life and early in your career, um, the first thing you want to try to figure out is kind of who you are, kind of what, what are things that, that strike you, that you feel passionate about. And then I think, you know, you try to allow yourself the opportunity to be led and guided. Uh, and uh, so that opportunities that come up that, you know, you, you may not think about might be the best opportunity for you to, to have an amazing career. In some ways, I think that's sort of how I ended up at Cary. Um, I am uh, I'm from originally from northeast Pennsylvania, uh, and I grew up with a dad who was an immigrant physician and he had a clinic in rural Pennsylvania. And so I grew up watching him uh, take care of farmers. You know, it was really one of those things where you saw the, the value of what a community physician did. In fact, I recall times when I would go to my dad's clinic and people would be paying him with like bushels of tomatoes and apples and things of that nature. We were in, in a place where the closest major hospital was probably about 40 to 50 miles away. So I'd say like, if you were really sick, you probably had to go about an hour. So my dad was in, you know, my dad was one of the few clinics in between that. So I have a heart for it. I grew up kind of around it. And um, I thought to myself, you know, trying to contribute to society in a, in a positive way uh, is, is what I was hoping for. And so like anybody, I, you go through pre-med and I was at Duquesne University, which was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I remember when I started to apply to medical school, and I was talking to my father, and I said to my dad, and this is, uh, tells you how naive we are when we're younger and the way we think about things. At the time, I said, Dad, I want to be a neurosurgeon, <laughs> and I want to be a brain surgeon. So my dad was like, oh, well, we got a great brain surgeon in town. And uh, yeah, I know him very well. Why don't you go meet the brain surgeon? So I went and met with the, the neurosurgeon in, in town. Um, and I sort of shadowed him for a day. And in the process of shadowing him, I saw, man, this, what a great doctor. I loved his office. I loved the way uh, he cared for patients. I loved everything about him. His name was Dr. Monsman. So that tells you something. I'm this age of my life and I still remember that physician. He was so impactful. And I remember seeing after his last name, it said D.O. So I was like, Dad, I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't understand what. So I see under after his name, it says D.O. He's like this, like great brain surgeon. I'm like, that doesn't 
I, does that make sense? He's like, oh yeah, dad, yeah, my father was, yes, he's, he's an osteopathic physician. And we have two physicians in this country and one's an MD and one's a DO. And I've got other physicians, uh, other friends that are DOs as well. And I remember starting to then actively look at physicians in my area and I started to see a bunch of DOs. And so I was like, oh my goodness, I just didn't know much about it. But anyways, because I had such a great uh, experience uh, in that neurosurgeon's clinic, I went and had conversations with him. And he was excited about telling me all about Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, all the great things that it offered. And then with that, we ended up applying to both MDDO programs, but had a little bit of a leaning because of that uh, relationship and uh, ended up going to Philadelphia, PCOM. It was a wonderful experience. And I think at least that's the early part of my, my medical journey in terms of going from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia. You know, when your years, first and second years, you start kind of coming in contact with lots of doctors and lots of different people. And you're still trying to, as I mentioned before, you're still trying to figure out who you are. But you do know one thing about yourself. You know that you got certain passions. Those passions come from the deepest part of your soul, from the deepest part of who you are. And so if you lean on your passions, it'll start to take you, you will start to seek like-minded individuals in your journey and it'll click. And when you see those like-minded individuals, then you start fostering these mentorship and advisement relationships, which in my life ended up taking me to, I actually did family medicine first and transitioned to emergency medicine and from emergency medicine onto disaster and humanitarian assistance, because for me, my passion was always about the underserved, it was always about those that didn't have, because I saw it when I was a kid. And I guess just being raised in the family that I had and my personal faith, it's just it was very important to be able to lift up the poor and help those around you that have more challenges. And I felt like my father did that as a physician. And I felt like that was the type of mold of a physician I wanted to be. And that sort of led me into this disaster of humanitarian assistance, where most of my time was spent with natural disasters and going to a number of different nations and providing care and, and trying to help and, and learning so much about humanity and learning about the commonness of humanity, the beauty of that commonness, that we all want the best, we all treasure our families, that we all want the best for our families and our loved ones that love is the most precious commodity. And I think in some ways, opening myself up to that allowed me to go into a field, to be very honest, as an emergency physician, I remember conversations when I decided to do fellowship in this area. They're not negative conversations. They were intended to be sort of observant and, and giving honest, critical feedback. But the feedback I got was, you really don't need to do a fellowship in this area because if you have a, an interest in that area, you will work in an emergency department and you can kind of have it almost like a hobby. But I have to tell you, it was my passion. And they said to me, there's very few jobs out there with this, but it was my passion. So when I was able to do it, because I loved it, because when you love what you do, you usually do it well. It was taken note by a lot of different people and I was able to make 
a career out of going out and supporting disasters and humanitarian assistance. So for me, getting to know different cultures, different backgrounds, being able to travel the world, being able to bring the DO name to international countries that may not even hear what a DO is and was very, very exciting. So I think, I guess if there's a moral to the early part of my life, it's follow your passion, follow your heart, and just let it lead you. Trust that, that that's an innate gift to you. And if you follow that, you're going to probably find that path that's going to take you where you went. The end of that path was it ended up here in Mississippi, where I actually did support Katrina Early on in my disaster fellowship, I actually was part of a Maryland team that came to, to Mississippi and spent uh, a month in Mississippi and some time in Louisiana. I didn't necessarily think I was going to come back here, but I had this profound experience, which was like a generosity of spirit that I saw in Mississippi, a kindness of heart, a decency for one another. And although I was not looking to necessarily go to a medical school in Mississippi at the time I was in Chicago. I was looking to support a medical school. I felt like that was where maybe I I wanted to do a little bit more work. And this opportunity then just showed up and it made a lot of sense. It aligned with what it was that I cared about. And when I looked into Mississippi and the, the physician shortage we have in this state, the issues of primary care, the issues with access to care and health disparities, that really triggered in me, hey, you know what? Maybe if you come down here, you can contribute to something much bigger than yourself. And and I think that's what gives me great, the greatest joy, trying to impart that to my students, that the greatest value in life is not material. That you should, you know, yes, there's plenty of doctors driving the nicest vehicles, and maybe the nicest cars and, and live in the biggest homes and all this kind of stuff. But that's all fleeting. What is lasting are the treasures of relationships that you build up with your patients, with your communities, with your co-physicians. And it is those treasures that cannot be purchased with with dollars. And then that gives back to you and inspires you in terms of if you're giving to something bigger than yourself, it's profoundly, profoundly rewarding. Thanks for sharing, Dr. Subaru. That was really insightful. I definitely believe that we end up where we're at for a reason. And I really appreciated that you said we should allow ourselves to be guided by our path because truly what's supposed to happen will. And to dig into your path a little bit deeper, you said that you originally started as family medicine, but then switched to emergency medicine. Yes, that's correct. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? So just like any medical student, I was sort of straddling the fence. I grew up with a father that had a community clinic, and he technically was doing a little bit of both in his clinic. Um, It turned into like what one would describe like an urgent care. And so I couldn't make up my mind at the time. And so I decided to pursue family medicine, which because I really love relationships. I love getting to know patients. And as I pursued family medicine, at the time there was uh, managed care had come on the horizon. And um, I actually got a master's in business administration along with my DO degree at Philadelphia, which I felt to be, it, it gave me a different vantage point about what was going on because it was very hard on physicians. It transformed some of the delivery of healthcare. And we see that still to this day, of course, the way the systems have developed. What was a challenge, I think, in some ways in family medicine, and still in some ways today, 
is that there is a push to be able to go a little bit faster. And I'm trying to teach everybody not to go so fast because you want to develop those relationships because you don't want a patient to be a disease. You want them to be a human being. But I just felt at that time with the managed care crunch that that was what we were kind of doing. And when I had rotated as a family medicine resident in an emergency medicine rotation, it reminded me, and I was between the two, that ER experience, I felt like there was some aspect of, I guess it was an immediate compassion or empathy, a little bit that I could do. They wouldn't bother me to spend a little extra time. I mean, this is many years ago, but that's probably what made me think, you know what? I kind of, I'm kind of thinking I want to do more emergency medicine. It gave me, emergency medicine gave me a great foundation to be able to do a lot of global medical care. When I did stuff that I did, I may have done on the side of a mountain. I may have been out there in an austere kind of a place. There are certain techniques and certain things that you learn that allows you that skill set. You become a little bit facile with wilderness care and emergency care and care in different kinds of environments. And I very much enjoyed my journey through emergency medicine, but I certainly in those early days, I was among the few that really did disasters. That was what I did. Disaster medicine was my career. Very cool. Yeah. Sometimes I think primary care is overlooked and we kind of show more excitement about pursuing non-primary care specialties. So I wanted to know your thoughts on why primary care is so important. So the one, this is the funniest thing. So you go out and you do this, I do the international stuff and all of a sudden it's like, it's all primary care. It really isn't. Like the, the first, unfortunately, after like an earthquake or a hurricane, first week or two, traumatic injury. But after that, it's all chronic disease management and maternity care, obstetric care, pediatric care. So what I realize is that there's a crisis of primary care around the world, not just in America and Mississippi. If there was a specialty that just said primary care, I mean, family medicine technically is that, that is probably the, the best foundation because in terms of, you know, routine management and chronic management, those skill sets are essential because when you go to rural environments, there's a resource shortage. You don't have the ability to get to a specialist so easily. Your patient is probably lower socioeconomic, might have financial challenges. They're not going to be able to just take a day off, drive an hour to go see a specialist. You know, not in a moment's notice. It's something they would have to set up well in advance. And I think that's where the power of primary care, the power of family medicine, the power of relationships, walking with your patients, going on that journey of health with your patients, trying to prevent them from getting sicker. I mean, I think there's a, a great deal of excitement in that, great deal of joy in that. You know, it's, like I said, yes, medical school is expensive. There are undoubtedly tuition is expensive. But at the end of the day, you have to have joy in what you do. You have to have joy. And I feel like primary care, I think for the vast majority of folks, you will find a great deal of joy through the interactions you'll have with your patients. While you might look at the number and say, well, a plastic surgeon makes a lot more or a dermatologist makes a lot more, they may not have the joy. Yeah. They may not have the joy. And that joy will help you have a great and long career. And it will give you the passion. It will keep driving your passion. And I think that's that's going to get you great satisfaction. 
I really love the way that you just put that. I think it's really important for us to understand how foundational primary care skills are. And so even if we choose to pursue a specialty, we should try our best to hone in and develop our primary care skills during rotations and residency. I really believe that this is something that will help us become the best physicians we can be. And so on that note, Dr. Subrao, yeah. what do you think is the most important quality for a physician to exemplify? Compassion. Yeah. I feel if you look at the, the healthcare environment today, there's a crisis of compassion. The system wants to drive us to go faster, wants to look at, I hate to say it feels a little bit like a fast food industry and in that, you know, here's a disease and here's a treatment and you treat them and you treat them type of mm -hmm. idea. And I think that when you do that, you lose that patient physician relationship and you're really, the patient is wondering to themselves, like, do they really care about me? Do they really care about my health? And I think that's where we have to take medicine back. Yeah. We have to be, so if we can be compassionate, empathetic, sure, we do need to maybe operate a little more efficiently, but let's not have the iPad in front of us so we can't see the eyes of the patient. And, and let's use the tools like ultrasound at the bedside where we can then really get to see things and elevate the quality of care for each and every patient. And I just think that um, if we have compassion and empathy, being able to listen as a physician, again, the system is not built for listening, but you sometimes you need to take a moment and be like, what's going on in your life? Tell me about what's happening. Did you have uh, something going on at work? What other stressors have you had? And I really think that when you do that, you actually start to open up the real obstacles that's preventing this individual from having an optimally healthy life. And then you can start working on that. And they start to see that you actually care about them. And then when that there's care there, now we can start to get to this might be a medicine or this is a behavior change. But if you come in and it's just like, you got this, you're a disease and you're out the door, we'll just keep perpetuating a system that's not working. That makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned this idea of the compassion crisis. So do you have any advice for us as students and what role we can play in combating this crisis? Okay, so a few things. There's a systemic issue that with the right attitude, we can transform healthcare. But we, we all collectively have to have the right attitude with the, with the right approach to recognizing the issues that we've got. So there's a systemic issue, but you're asking as a student, like, what do I do? I, I got to go on rotation. Why, yeah. why is this falling upon me? Well, this is what I'd say as a medical student. Nobody expects you to see 50 patients. You know, no one's expecting you to be a turntable of seeing patients. They want you to learn. That means they want you to talk to the patient, to get to know the patient. So you can take it upon yourself to really be compassionate, be kind share that you're a medical student, you just want to get a better feel for it. And then it would be helpful to the doctor to know like, hey, they're very worried about this medicine or hey, they're worried about this finding on this diagnostic scan or something. W would you be able to explain that to them? So that way, when the doctor goes in and perhaps their time may be a little bit more limited, they at least will be able to address something that's of import or significance. The other side of it is you're that patient advocate. 
So if that patient, as a student, when you see that patient and you understand what's going on, let's say they need to have a test done. Well, you can, you know, you can be the one to, to see like, like we're, we're waiting too long. Hey, talk to the nurse, talk to folks, remind people, hey, this patient has to go for this test or whatever. Or, well, can you give me an update? Can you, you know, so that way you're, you're advocating for the patient also. So I think that if, if in our small worlds, we do a little bit of compassion, it will aggregate up. And I think medical students can actually have a very powerful role because the expectation is you can, you're allowed to spend more time with the patient. And I think by doing that, you might actually help us try to fill the gap of compassion. That's a really good point. And I think in order for us to exemplify compassion, it's important for us to focus on taking care of ourselves and have healthy outlets. In this field, burnout is unfortunately inevitable, but we can do our best to try to combat burnout. So Dr. Subrow, what are your hobbies and what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, you know, um, I'll, I'll tell you something. I've always loved basketball. I've loved it. I played it when I was a kid. I grew up with it. I really enjoy basketball. And today, one of the ways I what I do is I coach basketball for fifth and sixth grade kids here at the local school, Sacred Heart. I enjoy, I get great joy of that. And then I, I get drawn into a lot of my, my, I have a son that's 13 years old. I get drawn into a lot of his kind of activities. I also like, you know, there's like, there are a couple of things that like homeless shelters, I feel like it's really critically important to take the time to be charitable. And while it's good to give just money to a charity, but it's also really important that you actually go and do something, whatever that something is, you do something, Habitat for Humanity, whatever it might be outside of medicine, you could do medicine, that's fine, but, 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 but cook a meal for somebody. Help someone out. I mean, charity should begin with people we know, should begin with the family, with people. Because if we start, if we're able to be charitable with the people that we love and we're able to be charitable with people we don't know, our society is going to be so much better off by that. And so what I tell, I want my students to know is be real, be honest, be kind, be generous, be generous with you as a person, with your time, with communities that may otherwise not have access to to the, some tools or skills you have, be generous. It's a good thing. Don't worry about whether you get paid back for it or any of that stuff. Don't worry about any of that. Is you're just going to find that in life, when you do that, A, you're going to be in a much better place because you're talking about burnout. You're going to be in a much better place than being able to perpetually give. The other thing is you got to know what your passions are. And basketball, is, believe it or not, is a passion of mine. It's ridiculous, but it is. But you got to know what your passion is. And that'll lead you to your profession in medicine, probably to your specialty, to what it is you want to do. But it also leads you to hobbies, things that you might like to do. Do the things that you find joy and love. And I think certainly travel for me is 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 a hobby. At this point in time, it's it's about taking the my son and teaching him about different places and communities and stuff. So so, yeah, I think those are those are some of the things that I do. As a hobby. And I will say the, the last thing, what brought me into switching up from like full-time disaster medicine to more of this academic world was because during all that I did during disaster medicine, I worked with a lot of medical students. They used to come and rotate with me. They used to come and I used to kind of work with them. And But it reminded me of how much I love teaching. And that's what made me think, you know, I need to really look at academics and if there's a way to balance 
that's what sort of brought me down to the South too. Partly also because this world needs people that have a little bit more knowledge in this area of skill. Thank you for sharing that. So one of our main goals on Do It Right is to have conversations about public health and cultural humility. And I know you've already touched on that a little bit, but can you go more in detail on why it's so important for us as med students to receive a public health education and to be aware of the public health issues that will affect our future patients? Well, the, the most important thing, and we saw this with COVID, we saw it with COVID, is that all of us are, we're, we're, all, we're all linked. A disease that happens in one part of the world, you can't run away from it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hit home. So we need to build trust with our patients in our communities. As physicians, we have to build trust with our patients in our communities. We cannot build trust if we don't walk with our patients, if we don't know the communities they come from, the barriers that they face, the, the concerns that they have where they're getting access, what their needs are. Is if we if we aren't able to communicate and have that trust, society won't listen to us. So what happens when there is a collision between trust and they're not folks aren't listening? Well you get these folks that don't want to get vaccinated or you get folks that don't want to listen to medical advice or go get tested or whatever it might be. And so we, our society, we're America, we're a melting pot of all different cultures. And we have to know the cultures and the communities that we serve as a physician. Really in medical school, you want to get as much experience with as many different cultures as you can. Because different cultures communicate in different ways. There's different ways to respect one another and and, and just different ways to speak to one another you start to uh, realize that there is a, an absolute common humanity, but you got to get through that first piece of it by knowing how to, to sort of open the door with your patient. And that, I think, really comes from cultural humility. And we can learn from one another. One thing about COVID, certain countries did it better than other countries. We can learn from that. Cultural humility is important. Personal humility is, is just as important. Arrogance will turn your patients away. Pride will make you miss diseases. You have to always have humility, have an openness, and recognize that if you have an openness and eagerness to listen, that's really trying to actually love your brother and sister That so that you can do what's necessary uh, and you can have that trust. I hope and pray that if such an unfortunate crisis, which is likely to happen, again, because we are so globalized and, and we have so much transport and everything. But if it is to happen, let's say 10 to 20 years from now, I hope that the system is more resilient. I hope that we have, that you guys are, are bringing a different face to medicine and a different face to our communities. And that face is a face that they, our communities can trust and will know that you have their best interest when you're giving them, communicating whatever messages that you need to at that time. I really like that comment you made about personal humility, because I think that for us to have a developing sense of cultural humility, we really have to be willing to improve ourselves and constantly learn. So like we said, we really wanted to focus on the intersection of public health and medicine. So can you share some of your experiences where you've seen the two intersect? Well, certainly. um, Well, I mean, certainly in terms of like recognizing 
we have to recognize that, A, there's a certain access to care issue that we've got, but there's a health disparity issue. So what does that mean? That means that there are communities that cannot, when I say access, mean a community doesn't have a primary care doc that's within that community. They have to travel a long distance. And if that's the case, guess what? I'm probably not going to travel a long distance. And by the time I go see the doctor, I am going to have a bad outcome, probably a heart attack or a stroke or something. And so that's when you don't have access to these communities, you don't have doctors in those areas, particularly primary care doctors, then you're going to have an unhealthier population. Not only that, there is also the challenge of healthcare disparities. And so you will see disparities among socioeconomic groups and among racial groups. And so those kinds of things, what we see, when you see those kinds of outcomes, particularly in like, for example, maternal mortality, black mothers have a very, very challenging time in, in Mississippi. Just the outcomes are, are worse in, in African-American mothers. Uh, mortality rates. And and so we got to do better for everybody. And it comes partly down to access to care. It comes down to health care disparities, because you have to look at those racial groups and ask yourself, is there a trust issue? Are there certain other factors? Is poverty the factor? You know, what, what are the factors that are playing into why we're in kind of the situation we're in? Um, I think so. I think that's why public health and medicine, you can't just focus necessarily as a physician, yes, you need to know what's coming in your clinic and what's going on, but you do need to also have a better appreciation for the systems. Because like we said, if one part of our community is unhealthy, all of us are unhealthy. So it's important to invest, to it, invest in it in a preventive way than after seeing negative outcomes and having to deal with that. So to lessen healthcare costs and lessen burden of disease, to have a healthier society, and healthier community, physicians need to have a strong public health background and knowledge base. So I know we've talked a lot about public health education as a med student, but I would imagine to actually apply what you learn as a physician, you have to really understand your patient on an individual level um, in order to understand how these public health issues are affecting them in their day-to-day life. So this could be things like difficulty paying for a prescription or transportation difficulties. I think in trying to understand patients in this way, it would be really helpful to utilize the osteopathic philosophy of whole patient care. Um, And so, you know, of course, these are things that any good physician, not just a DO, should be aware of. Um, But I thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit about how you feel your training as a DO has influenced how you perceive these issues and how you you work with patients um, when it comes to issues of accessibility. Well, I feel like most DO programs, and in my at PCOM, we were no different. The curriculum is founded on primary care. And when it's founded on primary care, one of the big things that's really emphasized is screening. And I think screening, healthcare screening, is critical. If we want to prevent disease, if we want to catch disease early so we can turn that disease state around and not later, that has to be part of it. So I think that's probably, and that holistic view as well, like you just mentioned, I think it's DOs because we do OMM, because we do, we lean into the compassionate, we lean into the empathy a little bit more. We see the value of conversation or communication a little bit more. I really think that what the DOs, what our profession contributes to medicine, that our philosophy 
right now is what is missing in medicine. I think more of our philosophy will help us transform healthcare. We'll, we'll put an emphasis back on screening. We'll put an emphasis back on prevention. And I think we'll be overall better healthcare. Yeah, and over the past year, I felt pretty lucky being at a DO school and being able to get this holistic education. It's actually really cool to learn that you were exposed to a DO at such an early point in your education. Yes. And how that was so influential in your career choice. It's a blessing. It was a blessing. Yes, it really was. And so we wanted to hear your thoughts on why we should truly embrace being osteopathic medical students. I will say that, you know, as you mentioned, as you're sort of kind of reflecting upon, you know, as, as students, I know what I remember those days. You're studying for biochemistry, you're studying for anatomy, you got pathology, you got the, you're really stuck in the, you're, you're, you're stuck really in the trees where you're stuck in the weeds. But when you look at the forest, you need to take moments in your, and this might be a little bit of wellness for y'all for medical students. Take moments periodically where you can see the forest. Because when you see the forest, the forest is being the best doctor. You're doing all of this for what purpose? To be the best doctor you can be. But what is that best doctor? Well, they got to be compassionate. They got to be intelligent. They got to know all this medical knowledge. But what else? They, they got to have compassion and they have to be skilled. And I really think that something that's important is you know, the OMM with your hands, with your with the ways to use your hands, using it diagnostically, using it as an intervention, using it in ways to help you uh, validate what your concern is or what's going on. I just feel like it's a powerful tool. I really believe that what oftentimes happens is things that you neglect for whatever reason, let's just say, because I could tell you, you might neglect the kidney, okay? You might neglect an organ system. You might be like, I just can't stand that, the nephrology. and never, I'm just going to go through the motions and that. Whatever you go through the motions, I promise you, when you're out there in your third and fourth year, because the forest starts to become much more apparent than the branches, because you're starting to think about residencies and things, that's when it dawns on you. Oh, boy, I wish I would have spent a little more time doing nephrology. But in this case, I think I wish I would have spent more time learning OMM and, and mastering it and gaining certain mastery because it can be, I tell you, I have helped people with migraines. I've helped people with significant low back pain. I've helped people with ankle injuries. I mean, there's so many things I've been able to, to help without prescribing a medicine. Yeah. It's just an incredible skill set. So, uh, and, and the one good thing I'll tell my students here at Cary is, we got the best OMM department in the country. You're really doing yourself a disservice if you're not actively trying to, to learn and engage with our faculty. OMT is a big part of the osteopathic ideology, but unfortunately, there is a percentage of DO graduates who end up not really practicing as much OMT. Yeah. And so could you share how you've used OMT in your practice and why it's important for us to not neglect these skills that we learn? Yes, I think that... You know, when you get to be a resident, that's kind of where you do have to toe the line. Do have to like see certain number of patients per hour and do certain things. So I actually think, and this is my opinion, I don't know, I don't have data to support it, but I do believe that when you get into that that level of system, 
that maybe you start to think to yourself, I don't have time for this. I don't have to, I got to do this. I got to follow up on this test. I got to follow up. I'd love to do it. I just don't have time for it. I think like anything in life, maybe you don't have time for it on every patient, but be strategic. If you see somebody with a migraine headache, try it. If you see somebody with intractable low back pain, try it. You know, there's certain natural environments to be wise about where you can potentially use this skill. Perhaps, like I said, it can't be at all times with every patient. But if you do it strategically, that's how you will maintain your skills. At least those skills, you may not have the armament of every skill, but at least certain skills, if you practice them enough, they really do become a tool in your toolbox. Yeah, that's actually really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. So as we're starting to close out, do you have any last pieces of advice that you want to share with us? Never lose joy. Be grateful and thankful. Have gratitude. Recognize that you have worked so hard and you are so fortunate to have this wonderful opportunity in front of you. And that if you continue to work and if you continue to put the effort in, you're going to have a significant impact, a positive impact on people's lives. And that's a gift. That's a profound gift. And and so if you treasure it, if you treasure it and you develop it and you nurture it, you're going to have wonderful, wonderful fruits at the end of the day. So don't take it for granted. Don't assume that I'm entitled to this. Always have joy in your heart, have gratitude in your heart, have humility. And I think that with those factors, you will learn, you will grow, you'll have the right attitude. And your passion will show itself and you'll go where you need to go to make a difference. It's hard work. Being a doctor and going through medical school is very, very hard, undoubtedly. But it's achievable. And we all have to we all have to sacrifice at times in life. And we make continuous sacrifices throughout life. By by doing that, uh, we are giving it back to humanity. We're giving it back to our brothers and sisters who expect a doctor that didn't do the cliff notes, but actually did the time and learned the material. And so anyways, those are the the thoughts that I have. You're right. No one one wants a doctor that took the easy way out. Yeah. We're here for a reason and what we're doing is really hard, but that's the whole point. It's worth it. Yeah. It's worth it. Um, We really enjoy this. Thank you so much, Dr. Subrao. You're really fun to talk to. Very much myself. And I enjoy, uh, by the way, I did listen. If you haven't listened to the first five minutes, the first podcast, that's far better than what I just did. Okay. (laughs) So I want to ask you to please do that. And I want you to like and subscribe. And I'm so proud of these student doctors. They they exude the best of us here. So uh, looking forward to more episodes. Thank Thank you you so much. much. And just a reminder that we would love to get your feedback and input, which you could submit through the suggestion form on our website. So stay healthy, stay tuned, and let's do it right together.